Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Good morning. I'm uh, Tony, an elder here at Bay Ridge Christian Church, and uh, as you may know, Brett was called away unexpectedly to officiate at a funeral, so it's fallen to me to, to give the sermon today. We have uh, two brief announcements this morning. First, let me encourage you to set aside the evening of uh, August the 27th. That's Friday, not this Friday, but the following Friday at 7 p.m. Uh, we're going to have a time of praise and worship here where we're going to get together and, and, uh, and do that. Um, we used to do that more frequently, but we haven't done it since the COVID hit, so it's been over a year. I promise you, if you come on Friday night, um, you will be refreshed as we praise God and, and pray to Him together. Second, uh, the kids are released to go upstairs. You see Mr. Bell back there with his hand raised? He'll, he'll make sure you uh, get to where you need to go. And for the rest of us, our teaching today comes from John chapter 4, verses 4 to 26. So I'm going to read the text, and we're going to jump right in. If you would, if you have a Bible, or can follow along on our screen up here, read along with me, please, the, the word of our God. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped in this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship 
in the spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. We're all familiar with the story of the woman at the well. It's pretty straightforward, right? Jesus meets a Samaritan woman who's a a sinner, officer, living water, and she goes out to the village and and, uh, converts them. That's the sermon. Thanks for coming. And if that's all it was, if that's all it was, I, I promise you, this would be the shortest sermon ever given in this church. In fact, my first draft ran about three and a half hours. So fortunately for you, I cut that down a little bit. <laughs> but there's a lot going on here, and, and most of the commentators I looked at this week disagreed to one extent or another what's happening. So maybe together we can talk about it and puzzle it out. In the interest of time, I'm not going to spend a a, a lot of time on history and geography, but, but the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other. And, and it's worth a minute to understand why. Samaria had originally been Jewish, uh, but after the Assyrian conquest in 722 BC, the bulk of the Jews had, had gone off in captivity, and those remaining had intermarried with um, most, mostly Mesopotamian and, and Syrian people, and they'd adopted many of their cultural and religious practices, practices that Uh, the Jews and the rest of Israel found abhorrent and considered heresy. And the Samaritans, for the most part, returned the animosity. And over the years, the sides had dug in and developed a a real hatred for one another. But the problem was that Samaria is a kind of a large landmass that straddles the center of Israel with the Judea to the south and Jesus' home province, Galilee, to the north. So here in verse 4, it says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And that's the first complication, the definition of had. Because good Jews didn't go to Samaria. They'd do anything to avoid Samaria. They'd walk miles to, uh, to bypass Samaria. They'd cross over the Jordan River to the east, walk up the far bank, um, and just go all the way around Samaria. So what's it mean in verse 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. I think once we understand the story, we'll understand that Jesus had to go through Samaria because he was compelled by his mission. And I'm not just talking about he had to go find somebody to convert. He had to go find a specific person, someone he was appointed to give most what they needed. Do you believe that God orders your steps, that he's sovereign, he's in control? What I believe is that Jesus had to go through Samaria so that billions of people over the next thousands of years could hear this story. So the text says he came to the well and he sat down because it was noon and he was tired and, you know, presumably he was hot and thirsty. Christ was human. And if if humanism has given us a slightly less divine Christ, it sometimes seems as though evangelicalism has given us a slightly less than human Christ. But we see here Christ was vulnerable to the same hunger and the same thirst and the same heat and the same sun we're vulnerable to. Now, so you'd know that I, I'm not a complete slacker, and I actually do do research when I prepare a sermon. The town of Sychar, where J- Jacob's well is located, is exactly 73.7 kilometers 
or 44 and a quarter miles from Jerusalem. So it was a long walk. Probably took a couple of days. And so we find Jesus sitting at the well by himself in the midday sun. He'd sent the disciples off to get food. So for the second time in two chapters, he's engaged in meeting someone alone. In chapter 3, it was Nicodemus, who we talked about last week. Nicodemus was a ruler of Israel. He was a religious leader. He was a Bible scholar. And that meeting was at night. In this story, in chapter 4, it's, uh, it's with someone who's exactly the opposite. It's with a scorned woman, someone at the bottom of society, an outcast. And this meeting is in the middle of the day. What do we know about this woman? Well, as important as she is in the Bible, we don't really know that much. We're not even given her name. But there's some things we do know. In the spirit of not looking over the obvious, uh, she's a woman. And that's important because in this culture, it'd be very unusual for a man to speak to a woman. It would be very nearly scandalous for a Jewish rabbi to be alone with a woman and uh, speak to her. T today, we, we take for granted that men and women are of equal value, that, that they both are deserving of personal dignity. But that wasn't the culture 2,000 years ago. In fact, women were more likely to be considered private property. But Jesus turns the entire culture on his head. He, he, he walks 44 miles to see this particular woman, to keep this appointment, to repudiate the customs of the day and engage in a meaningful conversation with a, with a pagan Samaritan. Now, let me take a quick parallel path here. If, if you were here last week, you remember I mentioned that you can't hate Jesus because of what he teaches. He didn't come to agree with you. He came to transform you and to transform your relationship with ultimate reality. So today I want to make a related point, but the opposite one. I, I, I don't think you can hate the Bible for what it doesn't teach. I know people criticize the Bible because they think they know what it says, but the truth is that most people who hate the Bible have never read much of it. And what they have read, they read through a lens of bias and prejudice. They find in the Bible what they expect to find, even if it's not there. One example is a lot of, day, a lot of people these days believe that the Bible teaches that men are superior, that men are more equal than women, that, that men should dominate women. And, and that's just not true. The Bible certainly does report on the culture and it does talk about things like male hierarchy and polygamy and the inferior status of women in the culture back then. Those were, rea were realities, and it'd be very weird if the Bible didn't confront those realities. Instead, the Bible shows us what's wrong with those things. Over and over, it makes the point that everybody is created in the image of God and, and worthy of personal dignity, individual rights, and, and equal value. And, and it, and it shows us what happens when we violate that standard. When, when Abraham has a son uh, with Sarah's servant, it's pretty clear God doesn't condone it. In fact, we see the fallout even today. Uh, the descendants of Isaac, the Jews, and the descendants of Ishmael, the, the Arabs are, have been fighting ever since Isaac and Ishmael were teenagers, and they're still fighting. So please don't read the biblical cliff notes by atheists and secularists and, and think you've read the Bible. If people want to hate the Bible, if they want to hate Jesus, that's their decision, but they should make that decision based on the facts, 
and not because you disagree with something the Bible doesn't teach. And the fact that the Bible makes pretty clear that we Christians uh, are to be in the culture, but not of the culture. Because until Jesus is returned, the culture is not going to be a Christian culture. So, as we said last week, you're going to disagree with some things Jesus teaches. It's okay to question those things. But doubt your doubts long enough to consider who Jesus is, what he says, what he does, the impact he had on people. That was last week. This week, don't hate Christianity and the Bible for things it doesn't teach, for things you think you disagree with that that aren't in there. So let's get back to our text. So the first strike against the woman at the well is that she's a woman. And in the Middle East then, and, and in much of the Middle East today, women were not regarded very highly. The second strike is that she's a Samaritan. She's an enemy. She's a pagan. She's unclean. She's defiled. And the third strike is that she's very probably a social outcast. A lunchtime trip to the well is unusual. That's, a, that's an early morning activity. That's, that's, not a, that's not a hot as get out activity. That's not something you go do when the thermometer's pushing 110 degrees. Uh, those jars are heavy. And from what we can tell, when women went to the well together in the morning, it was a social occasion. It was a, it was a chance for, for them to catch up, to tell stories. Not this woman, she has no friends. She makes this journey alone. She collects the water, and then she carries her heavy jar back to town at the hottest part of every day. It's not something she chooses. It's, it's, it's something others have chosen for her. She's being shunned. It's bad enough she's a member of an ethnic and religious group who are enemies of the Jews, but she's not even accepted by her own people. So here she is, a woman, a Samaritan, and a and an outcast, and she's at the well in the presence of this Jewish man she doesn't know, and it seems like she's probably feeling it might be a little bit of an awkward situation. Then something remarkable happens. Jesus speaks. He says, will you give me a drink of water? And as we said about this woman, all she knows that Jesus knows at this point is that she has three strikes against her, woman, Samaritan, and social outcast. So she's probably a little bit surprised Jesus speaks to her. We get the impression by her response. She rather facetiously says to Jesus, how in the world can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And whatever she thinks to this point, Jesus does the unexpected. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Remember Nicodemus from last week? He says, Uh, We know you're a teacher sent by God, and Jesus says, you have to be born again. It's the same thing here, is it not? Jesus defies the expectations of both Nicodemus the Pharisee and this woman, the, the Samaritan pagan. Then the woman says, but how can you get this living water? You have no bucket. She says, you think you're greater than our father Jacob? Jesus doesn't respond as I probably would. He doesn't say, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, he he offers to serve her, to to care for her. He offers her a gift of living water. Again, while Nicodemus would be appalled by the comparison, uh, we see the similarities between he and this woman. They both take spiritual metaphors and, and try to marginalize them by making them sound ridiculous. Nicodemus, how can a man be born again? The Samaritan woman, 
living water, you don't even have a bucket. It says something beautiful about Jesus, but unfortunately it says something kind of terrible about us. She and Nicodemus are being offered something so far superior to anything they've ever experienced or ever imagined, and yet all they can do is mock, just like us. Ma'am, I have living water. Oh, come on, you don't even have a bucket. That's us. And I guess there's an upside to being so terrible because if we weren't, then maybe the water Jesus offers wouldn't be so sweet, so glorious. And that's the theme of John's entire gospel. Glory, grace, truth. Remember chapter 1, verse 14 and 16? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And that's what we encounter at the well. Glory, grace, and truth. And so Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water is going to get thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. He says it'll be the kind of water that wells up in them and provides eternal life. But the woman, she still thinks Jesus is teasing her Maybe she thinks he's spent a little bit too much time out in the hot desert sun and his idea of water has been affected by the heat. She says, living water? Give me some of this water so I don't have to keep coming back to this well in the middle of the day. Do you hear the mocking? Like Nicodemus? She misses the point. Jesus is offering, offering her eternal life, abundant life, renewed life. The same life he offered Nicodemus, but instead of new life, she wants an easier life. And you can understand. I know I can. She's, she's tired of trudging up this hill every day by herself, friendless, alone, hurt, suffering. I don't want to do it anymore. Sure, I'll take the living water if it means I don't have to come to this well every day. Pass it on over here. But as I thought about this passage, I got to wondering, even though she doesn't seem to take Jesus all that seriously at this point, I wonder whether she isn't just a, a little thrilled that someone, anyone, is treating her like an actual human being and having a conversation with her. So first, Jesus defies her expecta expectation. Then he, then he seems to set her up to reveal her biggest problem and, and her deepest need. He says, go, call your husband and come back. And her response, I have no husband. Well, that's true. Her words are correct, and Jesus gives her credit for that. You're right when you say you have no husband. He says, in fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. In other words, Jesus said, your words are true, but you've used them to, to hide the deeper truth, the more important truth. And we can understand that too, can't we? Because that's what we do. We're, we're ashamed by sin. We, we don't want to be condemned. We don't want the people that... Uh, we know to think less of us. So she de deceives the person she's talking with, not, not by outright lies, but by deflection, by use of true words that hide who she really is. So Jesus says, you've had five husbands, and now you're living with a man who isn't your husband. Now, now we don't know why she came to have five husbands. Maybe she was divorced five times. That's possible. It wasn't uncom uncommon for a man to trade up. So it's possible she had five husbands who divorced her. 
It's also possible she'd been widowed five times. Each of her husbands might have died uh, while she was married to them, and, and maybe that explains why, the, why, why this man she's currently living with doesn't want to be her sixth husband. <laughs> we don't know, but we do know she's living with her boyfriend, and he's not her husband. I, told, I started out by telling you this story was a little more complex than it seemed, and I think this is one reason why. First of all, Jesus doesn't make her confess her sin. He tells her exactly what her situation is. And, you know, I think a lot of Christians sometimes uh, equate being nice with being kind. And, and while nice Jesus might have left it at, I don't have a husband, kind Jesus doesn't do that. What, what if Jesus hadn't told her what he knew? What, what if nice Jesus let her get away with I don't have a husband. She'd still be thinking for the rest of the conversation, if this man really knew me, he'd be like everyone else. There'd only be shame and desolation and self-recrimination. She'd, she'd continue to be crushed by the, the weight of her own sin, her sense of shame and failure. And, and also, if he hadn't told her what he knew, then when he brought up the gift of living water, she'd think her sin disqualifies her. How can she accept uh, the gift when she believes the one offering it would hate her if he knew who she really were? It's said, it's said that Satan tells us two lies. First, he tells us before we sin, oh, that's such a small thing. Don't be silly. Everybody does that. God will never hold that against you. And then the second lie comes after the sin when Satan says, how in the world do you think God could ever forgive you for that? How could he ever love someone like you? And we believe Satan, don't we? That's why we lie. That's why we keep our sins hidden. We're afraid of what our friends, our, our family, those we work with, those we go to school with, will, will think about us. If you don't think Jesus telling her, embarrassing her, revealing everything she'd done wrong to her was the, was the kindest thing he could do, then consider this second point. He doesn't condemn her. In fact, this is the last we hear of the multiple husbands or her current living arrangements, and we're only halfway through the story. He wants, to know, he wants her to know he knows, but he also wants her to know he doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't condemn her for it. He doesn't affirm her sin, but he doesn't treat her like dirt like the rest of the village does. Instead, he offers her the solution. Whether you're a religious man who comes at night or an irreligious woman in the noonday desert sun, Jesus seldom gives you what you think you want, but he always gives you what you deeply need. She's a sinful woman, just like you and me. I think what Jesus wants her to see, and I think what he wants us to see, is that apart from him, we all have deep, unfulfilled thirsts that we don't even know we have. And the more we try to quench those thirsts, the thirstier we get. You get the impression this woman throws herself into relationships. She seems to think she, she needs a man for romance or sex to be complete, to find meaning, to feel valued and loved. Instead, she's used by men who drop her over and over, leaving her wounded and devastated and brokenhearted. And Jesus knows that, so he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't affirm her choices. He tells her there's another way. 
Jesus wants her to know you think it's about romance. You think it's about relationship, partnership, sex. It's not about any of that. It's about me. Your soul is made to drink deep satisfaction. I know because I made you. I know everything about you, your best and your worst. And I still love you. And we see from the next thing she says, she's starting to get it. At first, it seems like she just wants to change the subject from men to geography. Here in verse 19, she says, Sir, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim we must worship in Jerusalem. Now, she's not really talking about competing mountains. She's really talking about worship. She's saying, is there any hope for me, for my worship, for my dealing with my failures and my sin? If I have to go to Jerusalem for God to listen to me, I'm lost. I'm hopeless. But if it's true that God hears our worship even here at Mount Harrison, then, then maybe there's a chance for me. Maybe there's hope. And Christ gives her relief, not by giving her the answer she hopes for, but by changing the paradigm she's operating under. Je Jesus says, geography doesn't matter. And that's a big deal because that's one of the main issues that separates the Jews from the Samaritans. But Jesus says geography is vanishing as an issue. Remember in John uh, chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus is talking to Jewish leaders at the temple after he uh, turns over the, table, the tables of the money changers. And, and the Jews ask him, what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus responds, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And of course, no one has any idea what the heck he's talking about. But after the re resurrection, the disciples remember what he said, and they finally get it. He was talking about himself. He's the temple. It's not a mountain. It's not where you live. It's not a building. It's not an idea. It's not even a religion. It's a person. We've moved, we've moved from geography to a person. He says it's not the mountain you worship on. It's the spirit you worship in. To worship in spirit means we can worship God anytime, anywhere. Because we have the Holy Spirit with us, God's very presence. The spirit that resides in the Holy of Holies is the spirit that lives in every believer. It's the spirit that provides rebirth. It's the spirit of living water, of real joy, real refreshment, real freedom. And he says, you'll worship not only in spirit, but also in truth. What's he mean by truth? Well, in verse 22, he says, you Samaritans, you don't know who you're worshiping. You don't know who you pray to. You, you think you know God. You don't know who he is. Interestingly enough, though, he says the same thing to the Pharisees. And in John 8, 19, he tells the Pharisees, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. But wait, the Pharisees? They're the opposite of the Samaritans, right? They're the Bible scholars. They've got Scripture memorized. They, they tithe right down to the spices in their cabinet. But Jesus tells the Pharisees, just like he tells the Samaritans, you don't know God. It's not true worship. Spirit and truth aren't very popular these days. A, a lot of people say they're spiritual, but like the Samaritans and the Pharisees, they don't know God. And truth? Well, good luck with that. Truth is anything... I want it to be. It's whatever works for me. Truth is a, is a moving target. There's, there is no truth. Jesus disagrees. He says, the truth will set you free. John 8, 32. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6. He says, 
uh, call on the Father to sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. John says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. Jesus says, you have to care about the truth. You have to know the truth. You have to apply the truth to yourself and to God. And then you have to worship in that truth. So how do we apply what we learn from Jesus and the Samaritan woman? First, do you have a deficiency in your life? Do you have a, an unfulfilled longing? For the Samaritan woman, it, it was the need to be valued and loved. And, and she, thought, uh, she thought it would be satisfied by men and relationships and sex. If you feel any kind of hole in your soul, I, I can assure you, you will try to fill it. You'll chase drugs or alcohol or material wealth or political power or family or church or, or pets or cars or whatever it is. But Jesus is telling us none of those things is going to satisfy our thirst. Jesus shows us that the only place we'll find real meaning, he says you need a bubbling spring of living water that will supply your every need. John is telling us that the things we think will help us get through life are leaving us dry. Jesus is the well we have to draw from. He's how my relationships are going to work. He's how my career is going to work. He's how my family is going to work. Jesus offers streams of living water rippling out of the deepest part of you. He says, draw from me because I am the well. Second, did you notice that Jesus offers the living water right here. He doesn't tell her, go repent, go break up and move out, go get your act together and come back, and if I'm still here and I still have some living water, I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you. He's offering it right now. And this, and this Samaritan woman and, and a lot of others in the village she lives in respond. You know, there's a famous passage in Luke 5, uh, verse 31, where Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He's not saying some people don't need a Savior. He's saying that there are some people who don't think they need a Savior. They don't know they're sick. They, they think they can get to heaven by their own merits. But the poor, the outcasts, the tax collectors, the hurt and broken, the socially ostracized, the Samaritan woman... They get it. They, they know their need. They know their hunger for a new start, a, a rebirth for the only thing that will heal them and satisfy their thirst, the, the living water. Which are you? Are you one of those people who think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person, and just in case Jesus is real, I'll be okay. In fact, just last week, I helped two little old ladies across the street, and, well, yeah, sure, this week I ran over one, but I'm still... I'm still one old lady up. Or do you see the truth that you can't even live up to your own standard of what you believe is right? That you're not what you should be. You're certainly not who you could be. You know your desperate thirst and your desperate need for the living water of a new beginning, a new birth, a new life. We're going to come to the table and as we do, I hope we'll think about the Samaritan woman and the amazing gift uh, Jesus offers her and, and he offers us. By the way, you know this isn't the only time Jesus asked for a drink. In, in John 19, verse 28, Jesus has been beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross, and he says, I thirst. 
And John writes that they soaked a sponge in wine vinegar and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. And once he'd received the drink, he says, that's finished. And he gives up his spirit. On the cross, Jesus asks for a drink, just as he did the woman here at the well. And he accepts the bitter vinegar. And that's the transaction Jesus offers still. You give him your bitter cup, your inadequacies, your failures, your faults, your sin. He says, pour out your guilt and your shame on me. I'll take the curse. I'll drink the cup. And I'll give you a fountain of joy and love and meaning and forgiveness that never runs dry. How much does the creator of the world love you? Enough that he drinks the bitter cup of all your hurts, all your mistakes, and all your suffering. Enough to be mocked and beaten and scourged and nailed. Enough to die for you. And then to experience infinite hell for the infinite sin of you and me and the whole world. He loves you that much. Earlier I said that the Samaritan woman wasn't necessarily taking Jesus seriously, but I thought she might be thrilled that someone was taking her seriously. How do you think she felt when she realized that someone was the Messiah? When she learned she was talking to the one the prophets had promised for millennia would come and set things right, that it's he himself, that the Savior had walked miles just to see her, to speak alone with her, to offer her new life. Do you think she was ever the same again? Do you realize that if you were the only person who had ever lived in the entire history of the world, Jesus would still have come to die for you? And if you really understood that and believed that, do you think you'd ever be the same again? If you're here and you think there's anything in your life, in your past, or anything in your uh, present, or anything you can do in the future that prevents God from loving you, the message of the Samaritan woman is this. You're wrong. It's true you're not what you should be. You're far worse off than you can ever imagine. But here at the well, we see you're far more loved than you could ever hope. And Jesus wanted you and me to know it. That's why he had to go through Samaria. If you've uh, accepted the gift of living water offered by Jesus Christ, and, and you know you only have access to that gift because of his broken body and shed blood, then uh, you are welcome at this table. If you don't believe, then I would just ask that you not participate. This is a, a meal for believers who worship the creator king of the universe in spirit and in truth. And if you want to know more or you have questions, please grab me or one of the elders after the meeting. We'd We'd love to speak with you. You can prepare your packets. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took uh, the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, or you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, you are the you are the good father who loves and provides for his children. You have you have forgiven us for chasing foolish pursuits and false idols and a vain attempt to find meaning apart from you. And all along you pursued us to, to fill us with your spirit and show us the truth. Thank you, Father, for your mercy on us, your love for us, and your work in us, in Christ. Amen. Take and eat. And Jesus, thank you for taking the bitter cup of guilt and suffering and pain from us and and giving us your cup, the living water that wells up to provide everlasting love and eternal life. In your holy name, amen. Take and drink. And Holy Spirit, please fill us this week with a well of never-ending grace and mercy. Help us to see God's presence in our lives, to experience his love and mercy and provision in, in powerful ways, to be our counselor and our guide and to work in and through us for our good and your glory. Amen. And now if you'd rise with me for the blessing, the benediction today comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Now in the words of the Apostle Paul, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now go, filled with the living water of Christ's love and eternal life, blessed to be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.